Hello, welcome to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. I'm Susie Colick, the creator of Pretty Deadly Self-Defense, a self-empowerment program through self-defense. I'm a storyteller, a violent crime survivor, and a martial artist. I've used these experiences to develop a program that's tailored for the way women actually learn, the things we actually face, and that's actually fun. Well, I think it's fun. We do too. These are some of our Pretty Deadly Self-Defense Certified Trainers. Hi, I'm Serena. Hi, I'm Shelby. And I'm Marilise. They're in LA, and I'm in Berlin. And there are a lot of miles between us. So what do you do if there isn't a Pretty Deadly Self-Defense course near you? Well, we put some basic techniques in an app. Which you can download from our website, prettydeadlyselfdefense.com. But we thought it would also be a good idea to take some of the self-defense questions we're most frequently asked and put it in a podcast. Welcome to the Pretty Deadly Self-Defense Podcast. We're on episode 67, and this week we're going to be talking about self-defense in a pandemic. So um, I think it's kind of obvious why I chose this topic, uh, since we've all been dealing with this for almost an entire year now. Um, But one of the things that I uh, started to think about was how much uh, how much certain things have changed uh, because there's a pandemic and because that seems to make it uh, a lot more difficult to do things like read somebody's facial expressions and identify people and kind of like get their vibe than you would if they weren't wearing a mask. Um, but there's other things I think you have to consider as well. So uh, I don't know. That's my question for you guys. I think there's less people on the street, which is helpful because you have less um, input to sort through as you are walking by yourself or whatever or with other people. So um, within your household. But there's like fewer people to keep track of, um, which is a little bit easier to, but it's also harder to hide. But um, because you can't like duck into a storefront the way you would before if that was something you wanted to do. Um, And then also you have an excuse not to let people get close to you. You know, we have this convenient six foot rule where if somebody's really creeping you out, you could just be like, "Mm, you know, I'm just going to take another few steps to the left. And then if they follow you, you're like, okay, this is clearly a red flag here. Um, Whereas before, I think we couldn't necessarily um, get away with that as easily. You know, or some people felt less comfortable doing that because of social um, expectations. So I think that there's definitely some um, conveniences to this. Here in Berlin, there's not that much less people on the street. Um, Like, theoretically, there's supposed to be. But we we don't actually have strict lockdown orders. So we can leave the house as much as we want. We can spend all day outside. We've had a big snowstorm here over the past week, so Berliners um, have been sledding, which is fun to see, but there's like a whole bunch of people, you know, on a hill sledding. Um, they've been ice skating on the canals. It's, it's a winter wonderland, but there, there hasn't been like less people. So I think that places where lockdowns are more strict... Um, like in certain parts of the United States. like, And also like France, obviously, and Italy, they got very, very strict. Right, and France right now is, has a, um, a curfew at 6 p.m., so that makes life kind of easy, except that 
you know, that means that commuter times are really packed, you know, like on the trains and stuff, because everybody's trying to get back before the curfew. So it, yeah, so it's, it's, it's yes and no. So I think that that's, if you live in a place where um, your lockdown or your corona regulations are much more strict and there are less people on the street, like England would be under that jurisdiction, you know, especially the larger cities mm -hmm. in England, but other places where there's more freedom of movement and things are kind of up to the individual with the individual almost always choosing to go out. Um, we might have to look at some other aspects that you brought up, Serena. Like, you know, what do you do when somebody's wearing a mask? How do you read facial expressions? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point to bring up because I've noticed a lot recently with people we know who we see with masks, we're paying so much closer attention, or at least I am, to their eyebrows and their eyes and their foreheads and what those movements are to try to pick up the facial expression underneath the mask. And it's a lot easier to do when you're in close proximity with them and when you know them. So you kind of have a general idea already about what their face might be doing. But when you're walking down the street or in a grocery store, you do quick glances at people. You don't have the same kind of hyper-focus on their eyes. So where it used to be, we could watch their face, entire facial expression and we could see that they're head was turned toward us and their eyes were focused on us and their mouth might have a creepy little curl to it and we could identify <laughs> I'm over describing where are you like going a, like well, what's up with your like trader looking... Joe's Mary Lou's <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in LA <laughs> I'm just thinking like we could identify easier because we had the whole thing to work with but now we have this idea that because the lower half of the face is covered that we can't identify a perpetrator as much or a potential threat as easily and I guess what I'm drawing from Serena's question is what what are the other cues that we can identify on somebody that would make it possible for us to pull out and see if there's a potential threat? Like, do we have to have their face, their mouth and nose and chin available, essentially? No, but I, uh, I would say no. I, <laughs> I think you already mentioned one, Mary Louise. You, you said, you know, their head is their head is turned towards you. And that's generally always true, regardless, you know, whatever, wherever the head goes, the body follows. So if I have you in my sights because I want to pick your pocket or I want to mug you or I want to do something violent to you, my head is generally going to be aimed in your direction. So that's a big signal. Um, I think we know that, especially from our own training, that when you attack someone, you're not a jellyfish. You know, there's tension in your body. There's a, there can be a certain rigidity, you know, partly as you're psyching yourself up. There's can be like a bit more of a nervous um, or a sort of high speed energy around you. And I think those things can also be observable. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I was going to say that um, maybe it's, maybe it's made, um, some people realize that that the reliance upon facial expression is is not actually it. It's the whole body. It's not just the face. Um, and I know usually when I'm looking at somebody, but not actually looking at them, when I'm trying to figure out what's going on with them without um, creating a problem by staring directly at them, I'm I'm usually looking at their whole body. You know how their how their stance is. What you know, kind of what their 
their actual body is doing. Because I know some people with um, mental health issues tend to jump around a lot. They tend to like physically be a little jittery. Um, that's also kind of the same with meth addicts. Um, so there's a certain complete physicality that cues me into this being a problem. But I do like that Susie mentioned that usually they have to look directly at you. So if, now if someone's looking directly at you, <laughs> you kind of like cue into that a little bit quicker than you would before because you're not like, oh, well, are they looking at something else or not? You can only see their eyes. <laughs> you know, you can only see half of their face. Um, but yeah, it was something that I... Um, really wondered about because I know that is going to change things. And I know in some, especially in, uh, you know, the U.S., you know, we're trying to um, encourage people to be further apart with each other. But I know over here, it doesn't really matter. They'll get close to you. And then on top of it, because they're aggravated about the whole mass thing, some people will get super close to you to aggravate you. And I think that's one thing that's absolutely gone up during the pandemic. And I've noticed this even directly in my neighborhood is the amount of violence has seemed to just jump, especially where we're at. Um, so it's created a lot of tension. So that just kind of creates a completely different environment than what we had before everywhere versus like there's some neighborhoods that maybe you'll feel that more than others. Yeah, I noticed everybody has since the pandemic started with one or two exceptions, um, you know, has become a lot more hostile toward each other just instinctively. Um, you know, out here, especially you go into a grocery store and somebody gets close to you and they just glare at, you know, glare at each other for a few minutes or whatever. Cause you're like, are you getting in my space? That kind of thing. So like, I feel like there's a lot of, um, which makes it harder to figure out if somebody's actually trying to come for you, you know, because everybody's a little bit more hostile and aggressive than they were before, either because they are angry in general at the restrictions or afraid, um, or they feel like you're not being safe enough, or you feel like they're not being safe enough. There's a lot of extra hostility out there. So it's harder to, um, you know, and we all pick up on that, whether or not we see their face, but it's, it's harder to differentiate who is um, being hostile toward you because they're coming for you or hostile toward you just because you happened to piss them off that day you know well then i think we would we would be wise to look at <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna say something that's like that i just made up so i don't want to say it i, I want to say like we would be i don't even know where this persona is suddenly coming from we would be wise to look at the law of anomalies which is a load of shit that I just made up. But we would be wise to look at anomalies or anomalous behavior. So if we if we know that like our baseline for normal right now is that people tend to be more hostile, temp uh, patience is running short and tempers are running high for a variety of reasons, mostly what has to do with a very, very prolonged period of stress that we're all dealing with. Um, and everything that goes along with that. What we can look for is someone who is either hostile, behaving in a hostile manner in a very different way, or who isn't hostile, which can also be kind of alarming and definitely be a red flag. If, you, if some stranger is coming towards you and you can see by their eyes that they're smiling or they're sort of like overacting in a relaxed manner because they want to gain your trust so they can get close to you, Whereas everyone else is like, you know, ready to, to, to jump and run the minute anyone comes their way, 
that can be something that can help us identify someone that's not safe for us. Which one is not like the others. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Which ties back similar to what we said about, um, I don't remember which episode it was, but Shelby said something about, you know, if you're going to work and there's a bunch of homeless people outside, there's the normal ones and you just don't worry about them because everybody knows and accept. And then there's the odd new one and they'll act different and they'll seem odd and that's how you help identify. So it's consistent, even into the pandemic, that you identify what isn't like the others. Right. And that hasn't changed. Right. I mean, the phrase, the new normal, has been thrown around for almost as long as we've been experiencing this pandemic. Um, I don't believe that we know what a new normal is, because I don't believe that we're finished with whatever we're going through. But... um, We've been in this position long enough to understand that there are certain things that are now um, consistent, you know, a sort of consistent level of hostility and frustration that everybody's experiencing, a consistent level of fatigue that goes along with that, right? We know that masks should be consistent. Social distancing should be consistent. Right. We also know that there's a lot of people who really hate those ideas, so they purposely violate them all the time. Right. So we so we have some things where behaviors have been consistent long enough that we can say this is our baseline for the moment. And that'll change. I mean, all baselines do, depending on all the other circumstances that contribute to whatever reality it is that we're in at the moment. Yeah, it's. um it, it's really complicated. I think one thing that the pandemic has done, I know at least for me, is that it has really upped that awareness even more because the <laughs> the environment, the landscape keeps changing, you know, um, especially for us over in the U.S. Um, it just, you know, we go from one emergency to another. And so that kind of like makes you tune into Um, what's going on around you even more. And I feel like people are getting aware of that. I've had conversations with friends who, you know, are like, man, you know, there's been way more gun violence in my neighborhood now, you know, um, than there was like before the pandemic. And um, it's kind of making you pay attention even, you know, maybe you could check out before, but now you definitely can't check out as to what's going on with your neighbor, who, especially, I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't know how many times you've jumped when someone starts coughing, because <laughs> you're like, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? Are you coughing just because you're coughing, or are you coughing because you've got the virus? Um, so I think that that's something that um, I didn't anticipate from the beginning, is having that awareness go into overdrive, like that survival mode go into overdrive. Right. But that survival mode going into overdrive, you know, this is, these are some of the things that contribute to, you know, PTSD, to, you know, to actually altering your long-term behavior. You know, the, the, I have a a couple of friends from Israel and we talk about this um, sort of regularly because Israel, between Israel and Palestine, there's been so much conflict and Israel has been under threat by so many other countries and regardless of what your politics are those things are also true 
Um, so that the individuals living in Israel are often living in a very heightened state of survival mode, and that's how it's been for a few generations, actually. The people in Palestine, it's even worse. But, I'm, but I un, unfortunately haven't been able to talk to them. So I have talked to the people in Israel, though, or some of my friends from Israel, and we talk about how Israelis are kind of always in survival mode. That's what they're used to. And that creates certain types of behaviors and certain types of value systems that is different to, for example, German behavior, where things for a very long time have been very stable and safe and secure. So one of like and just a small example of this, which has nothing really to do directly with self-defense, but for example, um, Israelis negotiate everything, everything. And Germans don't. Germans aren't big negotiators. And you negotiate everything because, and you settle for whatever it is. Like, you don't worry about holding out for the best price or the best deal. You settle because you never know if this is going to be the last time you're going to have this opportunity. Mm. Whereas in countries where there's a lot more stability um, and a lot more security, you just take for granted that there will be another opportunity. You know, you're not in survival yeah. mode that goes away. I mean, that's what civilization and that's what some of the things that we've created, both with technology and the Industrial Revolution, that's what that was supposed to provide all of us, was a sense of safety and security and covering our basic needs so that we could, you know, try and create the best world for ourselves. And then that's not what we did, though. You know, we ended up <laughs> screwing it all up. <laughs> but, and that's also kind of the yeah. promise of patriarchy, if you think about it. You know, I mean, the promise of patriarchy is, you know, I'm the patriarch of the family. You're my wife. You produce a bunch of kids. You cook for me. You keep a house. You create an environment for me where I am safe so that I can go out and provide for you and us. Right. I can go out and make a bunch of money. I can build the house. I can bring us the best things possible. And also I can use my enormous man brain to solve all the problems in the world and make it a utopia for all of us. And then they didn't. And now we're in a pandemic. And now, <laughs> and now look where we are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it just adds just, an extra no, but it, to cycle it. But, but it, but it is, I mean, all of these things are actually very, very interrelated and, and, this pandemic has brought so many of these things to the forefront that have been really hard for a lot of people to see before. You know, the the way that um, our patriarchal and capitalist structures have, have actually, all of these have brought us to this point in our evolution as humans. And we've, you can't not notice that this point is really undesirable. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's quite true. Um, I think that uh, you know it's definitely the pandemic altogether has definitely turned on some things in people that were either latent or um, not as apparent until now. You know, it's the pressure cooker situation, um, and I think that the the hardest thing for me personally to deal with is going for so long. Um, I mean, you know, I don't know about um, other countries because I can only speak to my own, but going for so long in um, kind of almost isolation from people. And then as soon as you go out to be amongst them, you're like, 
it's a little shocking again. You know, you kind of have to get used to it again. And um, because I've been in lockdown since March of last year. Mm -hmm. That's a very long time. Um, And although I do see people intermittently, um, I haven't left the house regularly since then. You know, I don't even go to the grocery store. Um, So um, that kind of shock of being like, having to go over and over and over again, like, oh, this is how people are behaving right now, you know? And I think it just speaks to how, in general, when it comes to self-defense, awareness is everything, you know? Observing is everything. You might not know what you're looking at, but the more you observe, um, the more information you get for when something comes up that is an anomaly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's just, it's, I mean, I, I would just like to expand on the idea of um, awareness a little bit in that observation a little bit more in the sense of um, being aware of what is, what is accepted behavior in a situation. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about awareness in terms of self-defense, people have a tendency to think of it as like, you know, always walking around, you know, like really alert. You know, like you've done a lot of cocaine or something, you know, and you're like, I'm aware of everything. You know, you've got three, six. And, and how many mushrooms have you taken? Yeah, you know, and and that's not necessarily what awareness is. It doesn't mean paranoia. It doesn't mean that you have to be like, you know, in the moment all the time, really aware and ready to go. You know, and it doesn't mean that you, you know, walk down a street and then can turn around and identify the number of windows that yeah, were there. No, it's no, not like you can't. No, observation. I'm, I'm I can't either. <laughs> it's not hyper observation. Either. Exactly. It, it, it's 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 understanding with with an intention of your environment, and and rather, let me reverse that sentence: having the intention to understand your environment, and meaning we walk. We're so used to walking through the world or at least before the pandemic, we're so used to kind of walking through the world, expecting everything to just kind of be as it is. You know, you know how to get from your house to your car, from your car to work, from, you know, wherever you park your car into your office, your friends, the mall, the beach, the the cinema, the whatever it is that you do on a daily basis. And we don't really stop and think about what what is normal? What is this? reality that I live in? What are the things that are here and what are supposed to be here? What do we all agree that belongs here and what do we agree shouldn't be here? You know, and I think that's a, that's a really important thing to do. There was a, um, I had a class with with a bunch of women a couple of years ago and we were talking about this awareness and and situational awareness and and also using yourself it's a phrase I like to use in pretty deadly using yourself to orient yourself to yourself those too many yourselves just about orienting yourself to yourself instead of using landmarks to orient yourself and one woman (laughs) said she had gotten off her subway, you know, at her subway stop, which she had done a hundred times before and was walking towards the stairs to reach street level and suddenly noticed one of the, you know, one of the posters advertising something in the subway, but it was from like the seventies 
And it was advertising products that haven't been available since the 70s. And then she looked around the station and suddenly everything was like the 70s. And she was like, well, wait, she was really confused, you know, because she was like, why am I in the 70s? <laughs> so the station, actually, they were shooting a, a film or a TV episode or something there. And they had already done all the set dressing. And, you know, I guess they were going to come back at night or something and shoot it. But so she wasn't aware of this. So when she kind of looked around, it, what was normal to her wasn't normal anymore. And then she got really confused, like, am I at the right subway station? Is this, it was her, the one that she lives at, you know, but she was like, am I at the right stop? Is this, is this how I normally go home every day? Is this, you know, am I doing the same things? What's changed? So it's interesting when we take those, those things for granted, all the input that we have, and how easily we can be thrown off when one little thing changes. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people are, I think, I think especially people who are, are used to a more consistent environment. Cause I know for me, because I didn't live in a consistent environment and that was constantly being changed and up, you know, and upheavaled. And, um, I noticed that when the pandemic hit, um, when it came to anticipating what we were going to do and how to plan and how to deal with it, I jumped on it much quicker than say my husband or my roommate because they were used to a more consistent environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, um, it, you know, in a way, the pandemic's kind of training everyone to be more aware and more in touch with the fact that at any moment, everything can change. You know? Right. <laughs> and if you're someone who comes from a culture that is really, uh, you know, that's unstable because of war or economics or whatever it is, if you've, or even in a personal environment where you've been living in survival mode for a really long time, you adapt a lot faster than other people do because you've got so much training for it. You know, it's like, oh, pandemic. Okay, great. What do we need to do? You know, whereas the rest of the world is like, whoa, wait a minute, I need like a whole month to digest this idea. What? <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's a it's it, so there's there's positives to living in survival mode, too. It gets exhausting and you don't want to do it over a really long oh, yeah. period of time, even though that is what we're doing, because it does actually like physically affect the brain. Um, it does leave scars in your life. But when it comes to moments like this pandemic, all your skills are super useful. <laughs> yeah, no, emergencies, fine, great, survival. After the emergency, different problem. Um, yeah, so I think that, um, and it, you know, and, and I know even with Marilise and Shelby, we've kind of talked about this, and with my other friends I've talked about this, it's going to be very interesting to see how this affects us in a forever kind of way. Um because, you know, it, we all just, the entire world has now gone through something together um, and is continuing to go through something together. Um, so I'm certain that as we get old in our 70s and, you know, we talk about uh, what it was like to live through this, um, it's going to be interesting to see what things we pick up from it that we continue forth with. And I think as far as self-defense is considered, um, I think you're going to have a lot more people who are paying attention than there used to be, you know. Um, I think that they will start to learn, okay, I, I need to pay attention um, to my environment. I can't just go about it without, you know, 
you know, going on autopilot anymore because um, you don't know when things will change. And that was always true before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's just now it's, it's, we're getting the point, that, um, you know. I think most people learn that lesson of you don't know when things are going to change when somebody dies, somebody that they love dies. That is usually, even if you know, you know, for a few years in advance if someone is terminally ill or, or whatever the conditions may be, um, when that person actually dies, that can feel like a massive and sudden shift in your life. And I think it's, those are the times when people tend to say things like, you never know when things can change. But I feel that you're absolutely right, Serena, that this experience of this pandemic has taught us all that things can change at any moment. You really can't predict anything, you know, and it's not a matter of the best laid plans. It's a matter of we don't control as much as we think we do. And that's not a bad thing. You know, having a pandemic is not a good thing, but it's not (laughs) a bad thing to also understand that you don't control everything. You know, but you do control yourself and you do control what you observe and what you're aware of and what you may be able to respond to or how you respond to it. And I think that's very, that is pretty much exactly what self-defense is for me. Marilise, did I just take your, did I, did I take your summary away? No, no, I thought that was beautiful. I was like, well, this should be put somewhere else in the conversation. But um, my my thought I just wanted to put out there was mostly for the listeners, because we're sitting here talking about awareness, which is something that we've all practiced, and we're trying to define it and explain it. But I remember when I first started training, people did the same thing for me, and it was still kind of this daunting, well, how do I know what I'm doing it? What is... I, I There's no way I'm going to be able to do what you're talking about. And feeling like it's this kind of mystical ninja voodoo magic that one day I might understand but for the people who are at home listening and thinking about this for themselves and applying it I feel like a lot of them if they just have actually already been doing this and when you get out of your car you notice nowadays if the person who parked next to you has their mask on If the person at Trader Joe's, which for the record, I love Trader Joe's, it's the only place I go these days, which is why it came to mind earlier. (laughs) Um, If the person you're in the Trader Joe's with you shows up next to you and is within your six foot bubble, that all is part of your awareness. You're already practicing it. And what we're just talking about is honing that skill and recognizing that you have it, you've been working on it, and that there are more ways to use it and to actively use it rather than passively. I think that that's a really good point. And I think one of the things that we get from martial arts, and I think we get that from self-defense training as well, um, depending on the the kind of self-defense training that you're experiencing, but definitely within martial arts, we learn how to hone that skill even more. And I want to share this this little story, because it's interesting that you put it this way, Marilise, because this came up today in, um, I'm teaching this weekly martial arts basics course online for people who like don't feel comfortable just walking into a dojo or nobody's walking into a dojo right now, but, um, when we can, who don't feel comfortable just starting right away. So to give a little bit of background and a little bit of 
basic forms and foundations that are, you know, can be applied to any martial art. But one of the people in the course today um, said, we were talking about tapping, you know, tapping out and the whose responsibility it is to gauge pain, the amount of pain that's being applied and the amount of pain that can be withstood and, and how we convey that information. And again, this is, these are, you know, people who have no martial arts background. So I was explaining the concept of tapping either on the mat or tapping on your body or tapping on somebody's arm if they're choking you and they can't, you know, see the front of your body um, if they're standing behind you and choking you. In a, in a training context, you know, only in those contexts, but when we're training in a safe way, how we use tapping, you know, to tap on the mat or tap on your body or tap on the other person to let them know that you have reached the limit of what you can handle in that moment. And the way I was explaining this was, you know, it's up to you to determine what that limit is and it's up to you to vocalize it. You are responsible for transmitting that information to your training partner. They can't read your mind, they don't know. So that is something you have to be responsible for. It is your training partner's responsibility to pay attention to the fact that you may be signaling that you've reached your limit. And the person asked me, well, how do you, how do you see that? Like, how do you see the tap? Do you hear it? Do you see it? You know, what if it's really loud in the, in the martial arts school? Then can you hear the tap? How does it work? And I was saying that, you know, when you train, one of the things that you learn is how to be both focused on the thing that you're doing, but also keep your vision broad enough so that you can see the rest of your body and you can notice those signals of someone being in pain or someone tapping. And of course, there are times when that does get missed because it's really loud and rowdy or whatever. And it's always okay to just use your voice and say, stop. But it's just an interesting relationship to the point that you brought up, Marilise, and that, you know, the, that awareness um, is something that we all use all the time, and we're using it even more now in the pandemic. You know, are you six feet away from me? Are you, does your mask cover your nose? Are you looking at me in a creepy way? Are you coming towards me and I don't want you to? All these things that we're looking at. Um, and we've been doing these things, as you pointed out, um, before the pandemic as well, just in general safety. You know, but it's interesting to think about how we actually do have a really specific focus for that training in martial arts. And again, across all martial arts, because all martial arts tap. I think wrestling does, too. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize wrestling. Did. Well, I don't know, but because I'm not a wrestler and I'm not a fan of wrestling in the sense of I don't watch it. Um, but I think they do. I know somebody taps, either the somebody ref taps. or, um, well, I've, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've seen it. My cousin did it for a while, but yeah, there, there is a tap usually to either if the person can't tap out themselves, then, um, the, uh, whoever's guiding the match will go in and tap for them. If they're like, this is unsafe and it's been three seconds on the mat too long. So we're going to, that's it. You've won, you know? Okay. Yeah. But yeah, there's a, a tap. There's a tap, <laughs> usually. right. So, yeah, um, without knowing all the ins and outs of wrestling, but we can say that it's applied there as well. But, yeah, it's a great way to hone that skill, I think. You know, that's one of the ways that I think some of our training in martial arts 
um, applies to life in general. You know, that kind of gives us that, that just a little bit more of an advantage because that is such a crucial part of our training, you know, is being able to, being able to stay aware while we're training to make sure that we don't hurt our partner and recognize their signals when they're letting us know that we're, we're about to go too far. Pretty Deadly Self-Defense is a self-defense program based in Berlin, but with coaches and trainers in a growing number of cities in Europe and around the world. If you want to join us just to take a course or to become a coach, a trainer, or even offer Pretty Deadly in your school or studio, let us know through our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com or find us through our app. Just search for Pretty Deadly Self-Defense in your favorite app store and download for free. And remember that all of our paid programs fund our volunteer work. So when you empower yourself, you're actually empowering another woman too. Thanks for being here. I'm Susie Collick, and you've been listening to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. See you next week.